Welcome to the Gloria Purvis Podcast, where we talk about the issues in the Catholic Church and in society that matter to you and to me, and I'm glad you're here to have that conversation with me. My guest today is Dr. Margaret Chisholm, co-author of a new book, From Survive to Thrive, Living Your Best Life with Mental Illness. Dr. Chisholm is a professor and vice chair for education in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at the John Hopkins University School of Medicine. I want to talk to Dr. Meg because the National Institutes for Health report that at least one in five U.S. adults live with mental illness. That means you and or someone you know may be actually wrestling with mental illness. Although the stigma around mental illness has somewhat declined, it is still a barrier to people seeking treatment and healing. Dr. Chisholm's book reflects her expertise as a professor and psychiatrist and her experience as one who has also struggled with mental illness. We will talk with her about her journey and also about her faith, and she has so many stories in the book that I found illuminating, and I also found them some heartbreaking and at the same time some hopeful some hopefulness as well. So I really want to encourage you to take the time to listen to this interview. And I'm hoping there's something helpful in this interview for you. But please note this interview is no substitute for professional treatment for those living with mental illness. The Gloria Purvis Podcast is a production of America Media, where real, honest conversations are happening on the most important issues at the intersection of the church and the world. And that's unique. You may not agree with everything we publish or even everything we talk about on this podcast, and that is okay. That's healthy. We need to listen to each other and be open to different ideas and perspectives. So if this podcast is meaningful to you, please support it by clicking the follow button on your favorite podcast listening app and by getting a digital subscription to America. Go to americamagazine.org slash subscribe and sign up today. The link is in the show notes. Stick around. My conversation with Dr. Margaret Chisholm is up next. Dr. Meg Chisholm, welcome to the Gloria Purpose Podcast. So happy to have you. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited to be here. Thank you, Gloria, for having me. <laughs> Look, I was excited too, because you currently live and work in and around Baltimore. So that kind of makes us homegirls or around the way girls, really, because I'm not that far from you in DC. Oh yeah, neighbors. <laughs> neighbors. So let me ask, you do talk about this in your book, but I just thought it was really interesting to talk about, you know, what drew you to the Catholic Church? Because you weren't a cradle Catholic, as they say. Yeah, no, I wasn't. I don't think I'd ever even entered a Catholic church for a wedding or anything. So, you know, I did a lot of seeking. I did a lot of exploring. I was raised a Presbyterian and then became an evangelical Christian in high school, got into the charismatic movement. It was the 70s. It was, you know, very uh, kind of sweeping at that time among evangelicals. And then I lost my faith, really. I fell away from the faith at college. As a friend of mine has said, it's college is the great undoing, right? <laughs> so I was part of that. And then it was only after I had my son that I started seeking, you know, different kinds of spiritual experiences. And I did the whole Quaker Seekers series at a Quaker school and I went to the Unitarian Church, and I did everything I could 
possibly do except go to a Catholic church. And then <laughs> I had a friend that said, hey, why don't you come to these Sunday night services with us? So I went to Mass at this Jesuit church in Baltimore, and it was the most humble Mass. It was like down in the basement in this sort of like cave, and I just fell in love with the liturgy. Mm -hmm. I did RCIA, had other experiences along the way that were confirming of my faith. And yeah, I haven't looked back. It's been just a wonderful, wonderful faith journey for me. Wow. Look at God. I mean, wow. So, you know, you are very distinguished in your field, your work at a prestigious institution, but also your work in psychiatry is born from your own personal struggles as well. And since your book does deal with mental illness, I thought, and you share so much in the book, which I thought was fantastic and encouraging, gave me a lot of hope. And I'm hoping a lot of people get a lot of hope also reading it. I also want to step back and say, you know, we say the term mental illness a lot, and I'm not sure we really understand what is meant by that. So could you help us understand what you mean when you use the term mental illness? Yeah. And that term, I had mixed feelings about using the term mental illness in the book because I think people, when they think of mental illness, they think of a psychiatric disease, you know, a broken part in the brain or a severe mental illness. But I think of mental illnesses as any time when the mind has gone awry, when there's been a problem develop in your thoughts or in your behaviors, your actions, or in your emotions and your feelings. And so to me, that's mental life. And when mental life doesn't go as planned, when it goes awry, that's mental illness. The book, though, you don't necessarily have to be having a problem in any of those areas, I think, to gain a lot of help from the book. It could be that you're dealing with somebody that is experiencing these things. In your book, From Survive to Thrive, Living Your Best Life with Mental Illness. <laughs> it's a mouthful. <laughs> but it certainly describes exactly what we'll encounter in the book. In it, you also give us your personal journey. Do you mind sharing some of that before we dive into your professional insights? Oh, sure. So growing up, I had a younger brother. He's three years younger than me. I also have a 12-year younger brother. But my three-year younger brother, Michael, had a lot of psychiatric troubles when he was growing up. He was hyperactive. And this is way back in the 60s, right? And people didn't know how to, how to deal with kids like this. So he had a lot of behavioral problems and then emotional problems and ended up being psychiatrically hospitalized for an extended period of time when he was an adolescent, uh, started getting into drugs and alcohol. So I had that background of my encounter with psychiatric illness through my family member. And, you know, I would go to visit him in the hospital and met the psychiatric care team. And I didn't really have a positive view of psychiatrists, actually, from those interactions. Then when I was in college, I myself had a severe depression and had a suicide attempt, went to an emergency room, was seen at the emergency room. They said, you know, were you trying to kill yourself? Of course, I said no. <laughs> and they just let me go. They took that at face value, even though if they had taken much of a history, they would have found I'd lost 25 pounds through loss of appetite and had all kinds of signs and symptoms of depression. So those my I had fairly negative encounters with psychiatry as a field, and I had my own, as I said, depression that I dealt with and got better on my own, uh, thankfully. And then I was very well until... I'd say 15 years later, when I had my son, 
And after I gave birth, I, as most mothers are, I was a little, or at least first time mothers are, I was a little anxious and was tired and kind of overwhelmed with that life transition. And then I noticed that the other mothers in my mom's group, they all were bouncing back, but I kind of got more and more tired, started feeling more depressed, anxious, Mm. and even started having suicidal thoughts. And that's when with my husband, he suggested that I get some help, even though I was a psychiatrist by this time, I didn't recognize it in myself Mm. and did get antidepressant medication and some therapy and got better and have been well since. So that was my own experience with depression a couple of times in my life. And then now, 10 years ago, my brother, who was slightly younger than I, took his own life, which was obviously a tragic loss. So I've had you know, good and bad experiences with psychiatry, and I've had tough experiences, not only myself, but even more so with the loss of my brother. You know, I experienced the loss of my older sister very sudden. It was in a car accident oh, when no. I was a teenager. And, oh, my um, goodness. I'm so sorry to hear that. It's, and I'm sorry to, you know, I read about your brother, and I'm hearing you talk about it. I'm sorry about that, too. And I, that life-changing event I remember seeing things moving through the world shortly after this and seeing things just moving in slow motion. And I wasn't on any medication or anything like that, but I knew something was not right. And, you know, I think when people experience things like this, they don't know what to do. They don't believe that there is another side. There is something where you can actually flourish. And you use that term flourishing in the book, but I'm wondering if you would maybe describe what you mean by flourishing. Because we also, as Catholics, that's one of the things that we talk about, the common good. We want people as groups or either individuals to flourish, but maybe we should think more deeply about what that means. Yeah. So, you know, I think of flourishing as the good life, right? What do we all want out of life? And a lot of my thinking about flourishing has been informed by Tyler Vanderweel, who's a statistician and epidemiologist, a scientist at Harvard. And what Tyler Vanderweel has done is he has identified these domains of flourishing, things that people all over the world value as ends in themselves, that they all are working towards and striving to achieve. Obviously, a state of flourishing, none of us ever reach that ultimate state. It's always aspirational. We want to get closer and closer to that good life. But what does a good life look like is the question that he asked. And he found that across cultures, across religious and philosophical traditions, a good life usually means that you're happy and satisfied, that you're mentally and physically healthy, that you have meaning and purpose in your Mm. life, that you have character and virtue, and that you have close social relationships. And you don't have to have every one of those to flourish. And we certainly know from psychiatric research that people can still have psychiatric symptoms and even not be able to function the way they did before their severe illness, but they can still have a sense of flourishing, have a sense of meaning and purpose have close social relationships, have character and virtue, obviously, and be happy and satisfied in their life, even though they still have signs and symptoms of an illness. You also made uh, the point in the book that 
one's mental illness, whatever its origin, is like any other human disease, like cancer, for example. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah. So the way I think about psychiatric problems is that they come in sort of four flavors. There's some that are diseases that have their origin in broken parts or functions, usually of the brain, but it can be of the body as well, but something that you have. And those kinds of psychiatric problems are almost identical to non-psychiatric diseases like high blood pressure or cancer or heart disease, right? That you don't ask for it, it just comes upon you and it's because of a broken part or function in your body. So that's only kind of one family of psychiatric problems though. There are also other psychiatric problems that are less like those physical diseases and those are behavioral disorders like eating disorders or substance use disorders because there is a role of at least initial choice to, okay, I'm afraid of being overweight, I'm going to start restricting my food intake. Or, you know, somebody's introduced a drug to me, I'm going to try it, all right? And then in certain people, for instance, with drug abuse, they might experience that differently than other people because of their biology. And then they get into this vicious cycle of using, that increases their drive to use because, again, they're getting rewarded for using, you know, with a euphoria, or if they stop using, they might have withdrawal. So there's this vicious cycle that happens where choice gets narrower and narrower. Mm. And then there are also the psychiatric problems that grow out of who we are as people, our personalities, right? You know, yeah. sometimes our personality is a good fit for a certain situation. Sometimes it's not so good a fit. And that can cause us problems. And by personality, I mean not only our temperament, but also our intellectual or cognitive capacity, right? So if somebody has an intellectual disability, for instance, and they're put into a classroom and are asked to, say, read, they might have a behavioral reaction to that that's out of character for them. And the problem isn't necessarily their own intellectual disability, but it's more the mismatch of that intellectual disability and the situation that they put in. And the same thing happens with our temperament side of our personality. Somebody who might be very introverted like I am, mm -hmm. you know, when I have to give a public talk or something like that, I might get anxious or feel in a way that I don't normally feel right. um, because of that situation. And then the fourth family of psychiatric problems are sort of life story problems, things that come about because of what you've encountered, like grief is mm -hmm. a good example. So that's really different from diseases like cancer, right? We can say that grief is a very different kind of experience. And that's one of the things I think that you, when you talk about the life story in the book, why you say it's so important when you see someone that they actually should be talking to you, <laughs> listening to you when you're seeing someone and you're seeking help. Did I understand that right? Yeah. I mean, I think when you're seeking help, I think it's important for the person that's trying to help you to understand what the origin of your problem is. Mm -hmm. And if they think it's all a broken part and they want to just give you medication, well, that's good if it is a broken part. <laughs> but usually these broken parts aren't taking a place in a vacuum, right? You are a person too, who has a whole set of hopes and dreams. And so kind of Getting to know you as a person, getting to know your life story is really essential. And getting to know your personality, too. What kind of person are you? Mm -hmm. 
And one of the things you do in your book is you use metaphors and illustrations in the book. I particularly like the travel one, although I was like, you know, there's no visualization of TSA <laughs> going to TSA. But I loved, anyway, like I like your metaphors and illustrations that are in the book. And it made what I thought, you know, were complex subjects actually quite accessible and understandable. There's a term you use in the book called rescripting. And I'm wondering if you could explain that term for the listeners. Yeah, I think as human beings, we're always kind of telling ourselves stories about what we are experiencing. So people will come for help because their life's not where they want it to be. And usually they come with an idea of what the reason for that is. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that reason is, you know, apt. However, you know, there are some times when people have encountered something like a loss, say they've gotten divorced. And they might come for help dealing with that. They might say, all my problems are because I got divorced. And if the person that they're seeing doesn't ask more about that, you know, I don't think they should take it at face value because mm -hmm. sometimes you get into situations like a divorce because you've become depressed, right? You become really irritable and withdrawn and and you might have more conflicts with your spouse, mm -hmm. and then you end up getting divorced. So you're coming saying, all my problems are because I'm divorced. But with a careful history, and by talking with you, the therapist or the clinician might say, well, actually, I understand that that's the story you're telling yourself, but I think there's this other explanation mm -hmm. for why you're feeling the way you're feeling. So rescripting is basically taking the story that the patient brings us and trying to reframe that story to make it a more meaningful and adaptive story that will actually help somebody heal. So if I or our listeners are thinking, gosh, there are some things that I am having difficulty with, what questions can we ask ourselves maybe to rescript our own story? Yeah. So one of the things I often think about in terms of rescripting is so often when things happen to us, we focus on the losses mm -hmm. rather than the gains. Even from terrible, terrible situations, even where there's immense suffering, I think we can make meaning of that. I mean, Viktor Frankl, the psychiatrist that was in a concentration camp, you know, was able to emerge from that and reframe that horrific experience as something meaningful. My brother's death, right? So my brother's death, how can I rescript that to something meaningful? Well, you know, it's helped me, I think, be a better doctor. Again, I'm not, I wish it hadn't happened. Mm -hmm. I'm not wishing these experiences on anybody, but how can I make meaning and take this tragedy and see something good in it? And I think as a Catholic, I often think about, you know, the suffering and the crosses that we carry and how that can, you know, bring us closer to Christ. So I think there are ways that the Catholic tradition has been rescripting our suffering. I think sometimes about how God still can make good out of evil, but to be able to say and think and about our suffering and flip the script, if you will, find some meaning in it, I think is very helpful. One of the things you talk about, I think, is mapping out our cognition and temperaments. Mm -hmm. Why is that important? And maybe explain what you mean by cognition and temperaments. So when I think of personality, I think of these aspects of ourselves, cognitive and 
temperamental aspects that we all share in the sense that these are universal traits, our capacities, and that they are measurable in each person and they're graded. So there are about five big domains of temperament. So there's this thing called neuroticism, which is really more about how kind of stable your personality is versus reactive, Hmm. you know. So I feel things really strongly, so that makes me a more neurotic person. (laughs) There's extroversion and introversion, you know, whether people are, you know, kind of live in the present. Extroverts often live in the present, so it's easy for them to be social because they're not worrying about things they just said or about to say, et cetera, or more introverted, where you're more cautious thinking about what that might lead to, thinking about what you just said at a party. So there's neuroticism, extroversion, introversion, and then there's openness, So people vary on their openness to new experiences. I'm very open, and that can get you into trouble when you're too (laughs) open. Uh, You might try too many things that aren't really uh, good for you. And then there's agreeableness, and then there's conscientiousness. You know, are you somebody that follows through on your promises, or you kind of forget and don't take it very seriously? Do you pick up your socks, or do you, like, throw things all around? (laughs) So all those traits are pretty much set from an early age, and they stay with us our whole lifetime. There's nothing good or bad. It's all situational, right? Neurotic, being, you know, somebody that feels things strongly, you know, is very reactive. That can be really good, especially for certain professions like acting and (laughs) being a poet or something like that. But in certain situations, they'll get you into trouble. And so that's kind of the idea about personality. There's cognitive side of your personality. There's the kind of emotional temperament side of your personality. And then within that emotional temperament side, there are these five big domains of temperament. We'll be back in a minute. You know, for someone that experiences feeling strongly, your calmness, the kind of self-mastery, at least that's what I would call it, of your emotions, to me, seems to be very evident. And so it can be, at least as you're talking about this, that someone can be neurotic, but that doesn't mean they're out of control necessarily. Yeah. And I think what you're noticing is that these are very internal experiences. Mm -hmm. So that's why it's so important for clinicians to get to know you as a person, because you could look one way on the outside, but be having a very different internal experience. Mm, Interesting. I'm not intentionally concealing my neuroticism, but there's often a disconnect with how people look on the outside and what they're experiencing on the inside. And sadly, I think we know this from people who um, take their own life and it's out of the blue and people think this is the last thing I thought was going to happen. So these things are very internal and it's only through asking that you can understand the other person's experience. You talk about the pathways to living a more flourishing life. Can you explain those pathways? Yes. So we were talking about the domains of flourishing and Tyler Vanderweel's work at Harvard. It's so exciting what he did because he took these decades-long, large epidemiologic studies where they followed people for 30, 40, 50 years. And he looked at those flourishing domains that they had asked about on the questionnaires, 
And he thought, what can I learn from those people who are flourishing? What were the factors that helped them flourish? And he went back and he found that there were four main factors or pathways to flourishing. And this is all scientific evidence, Mm -hmm. dozens of studies. The pathways he found were family, work, education, and religious community. And, you know, the media recently reported that there may be a correlation between people who lack religion in their lives and so-called deaths of despair. Can you comment on this? Absolutely. I know that the Tyler Vanderwill has also done this very interesting study that showed that religious service attendance specifically mm. is protective against suicide. Wow. And more protective if you're Catholic versus Protestant. Really? In terms of religious service attendance. You know, it, that's, you know, one of the things I think about is that when we go to Mass, generally speaking, if we're in a state of grace, we go up and we receive the Eucharist. We receive our Lord and we take him into ourselves. So, of course, now I'm going to be meditating on that a bit as to that kind of physical union with our Lord in the Eucharist, strengthening us and also maybe being a protective thing for us as well. How can people of faith, specifically Catholics, maybe help others who may be currently suffering from mental illness? And maybe what you say will be something across the board, whether you have a particular faith or not. So, you know, when you have a friend or a family member who comes to you and shares an experience that they're having that's difficult, or if you're noticing that they're behaving or thinking or seem to be, you know, expressing their feelings in a way that's uncharacteristic, it's often hard for a family member or friend to be able to really understand the origin of that problem. So I would advise people to help someone find a professional that they can talk to. Mm. It can be a therapist, can be a, a pastor, a priest. I think that's really an important first step to not do it alone, to not kind of be the sole person responsible for helping. You know, one of the other hurdles I think for people of faith can be, sometimes we think faith should be enough. And when people are going through a struggle, we'll say, have greater faith, pray more. You know, how would you recommend people of faith think about the connections and perhaps even disconnections between faith and mental health? Well, you know, when I think about the power of prayer, which I certainly have faith in, mm-hmm. you know, if somebody has been given a cancer diagnosis, we pray. Yes. But we also seek professional treatment. When somebody is experiencing a psychiatric problem, I would say that you would also, of course, want to pray, but you'd also want to seek treatment just like you would for a non-psychiatric problem. So I don't think they're incompatible. I mean, I think God has many servants here on earth who are uh, going to be helping others heal. I don't think it is in conflict. I don't think seeking help for a psychiatric problem is in conflict with being faithful. Amen. I see that. One last question. Can you talk about your vocation as a doctor and educator in light of your Catholic faith? Yes. It's interesting because, as I said, I I was a very religious child. Mm -hmm. My grandmother, you know, said my favorite book was this book when Jesus comes to your house or something. I mean, I was just 
a faith-filled child, all that fell away during college. Uh, What didn't fall away was my interest still in service. So, you know, I became a physician wanting to serve other people. And when I found my faith again, I would say it just amplified that feeling of service, that dedication to service even more. But, you know, even before I converted to Catholicism, I always thought it was very important to love my patients. So I had some meeting because we do some outreach work with faith communities in Baltimore. And I had a meeting with all these pastors and religious, you know, these faith leaders. And afterwards, the head chaplain said, you know, they really enjoyed hearing from you. They call you the doctor who loved her patients. I was like, don't all doctors love their (laughs) patients? So I know there was always this thread of love and there's always been this thread of service Mm -hmm. in what I do. Now that I've reconnected with Jesus, with Christ, I feel even more deeply a connection with this service calling and with this idea of loving my patients because it's more evident than ever to me that the light that I see in my patients is is from Jesus. Mm, that's wonderful. My gosh, I, I hope when I go to the doctor, <laughs> if they see any light in me, they see the source of that being Jesus. I mean, that to me changes completely how we'd interact with every person in front of us, that that's what we saw in them and that's what we connected it back to. And that's a fundamental truth of who we are, right? We believe that as people of faith, that that's fundamentally true about each and every human person. And wow, what a blessing that you're able to connect in that way with the people who come to you seeking help. I really do love my patients. I'm thinking of a patient that I saw who was hospitalized whose entire face was covered with tattoos. And it was very off-putting to people. I was so drawn to him. (laughs) He was sort of my favorite patient on the unit at the time because it was just, I don't know, I just, I love seeing beyond that surface and really connecting with that other bite. I just love it. You know, as you say this, I'm reminded of St. Martin de Porres, who one of the prayers I think they said when um, he was canonized is they talked about his gift of being able to see each person as made in the image and likeness of God. And from that, he was able to love every single person. Sounds like you have that. I don't think I'm a saint, but I'm working towards it. (laughs) Right. We're all working towards it. But I have to tell you, that's what I'm hearing and feeling as we talk about this. And thank you so much for actually writing your book, From Survive to Thrive, Living Your Best Life with Mental Illness. I think there's going to be another one, The Doctor Who Loved Her Patients. I found this book immensely enlightening. It was an enjoyable read. It was so practical, great stories and great illustrations of things in the book. I really hope everybody listening goes out and gets this. Believe me, you will will not be disappointed. Thank you so much. Well, thanks. And I really appreciate this conversation. It's been lovely for me. Thank you. I'm so glad you're tuning into the Gloria Purvis podcast and journeying with me through these important and, well, sometimes challenging conversations. Please share this episode with a friend or family member and be sure to subscribe to the Gloria Purvis podcast on your podcast app. Leave us a review if you can. I would love to hear from you. 
You can follow me on Twitter at Gloria underscore Purvis and on Instagram at I am Gloria Purvis. The Gloria Purvis podcast is a production of America Media. It's produced by Maggie Van Dorn and is engineered by Frank Tucson. You can learn more about America Media at americamagazine.org. We'll see you next time.